you hear me? Am I on? Excellent. Good morning. That was sort of weak. Good morning. That's, that's better. Hope everyone's awake. Well, um, I'm super excited to be here with you today. If you don't know me, I'm Keith Knight, um, Haley's husband. Probably most of you would know me as. Uh, but uh, I'm a youth pastor at Stonebridge Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I've been there for almost right on six years. And uh, we get the opportunity as pastors there at Stonebridge all the time. We sort of rotate our preaching schedule. So there, there are five or six of us and uh, probably four of us rotate through the preaching schedule, just sharing God's word at different points in time. So while I get to do this a lot, this is extremely special for me because uh, I just enjoy going other places to declare God's word. And I know of your faithfulness and especially how you've been uh, mentors and, and support to uh, my wife and my family, and in all the ways that you've ministered to us, we appreciate you. And so I'm excited to be able to br- bring God's Word to you this morning. So if you will, uh, will you turn to the book of Jude with me this morning? And while you're, while you're turning there, let me just say as well that um, I know a lot of times pastors don't like praise heaped upon them because they would be the first ones to tell you that it's, it's all about Christ and not about us, and we're just... Uh, just sinful messengers that are called to present the gospel. But I know that you know this, but I want to remind you that you have a very faithful man who is, uh, who is pouring his heart out to his Savior and sharing God's word with you and ministering to you. And I spent a little bit of time with Jeremy, and I can attest to the fact that he loves the word of God with a deep, deep passion. I know that you know that. But I just want to encourage you to continue to encourage your pastor because it's a hard, hard calling. To be, a, to be a pastor is, is a hard calling um, in, in that you not only are expositing God's word and taking God's word, and it's a fearful thing to do that because you want to do it correctly, but it's also in, in worrying about and praying for and caring for other people. So I just want to encourage you guys to be an encouragement and, and to edify Pastor Jeremy as he ministers to you. Well, if you'll join me in the book of Jude, uh, you'll find out why, why we're here in a minute, but when, when it was up to uh, my decision to sort of uh, go where I was going to preach this morning, I decided the book of Jude would be great because it's, it's, in the whole book, there's only 25 verses. But the 25 verses are extremely pertinent to where we are at in society now. And so just to begin, we, we sort of do this uh, a lot, and I'm sure you do it here too, but we're just going to read uh, through these 25 verses, if you will. It might take us a little while, but it'll be cool and be great to stand up and stretch our legs as we honor God's word as well. Would you stand and join me? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We thank you that you have not left us alone in this world without speaking to us, but Lord, you have spoken to us mightily. And Lord, you also tell us that it is this word, your word, that is able to penetrate and to divide joints and marrow, to to cut us open and reveal to us exactly who we are inside. Lord, you tell us that the word is like a mirror in which we look into it, Lord. We don't want to walk away forgetting our sinfulness, forgetting how many times we failed you, but we want to be encouraged encouraged by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which you've revealed to us that there is no way in Christ that we could make you love us more, and there's no way in Christ that you could love us less. So Lord, we pray that the gospel would take root in our hearts this morning and would encourage us and equip us to go out and be presenters of the gospel to those in this world who are lost. Lord, we love you and thank you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, this is just fair warning. Uh, Some of you guys have only had interpersonal interactions with me that are sort of just talking face-to-face. And I'm not usually a yeller or a crier face-to-face, but when I preach from the Word of God, I yell and I cry. So that's just, that's fair warning. So in the book of Jude, what what we see here is something that has been sort of unfolding since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time, there has been a message from God. There has been a plan that God has had for the world. It's from the foundations of the world. Uh, The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation. So even before anything was created, God's plan was always Jesus, to make much of Jesus, to make him the apex of everything in the universe. 
And so in this plan, there's also been another player who shows up in the garden when God creates Adam and Eve, and this, this player, Satan, shows up in the garden, and it's always been his desire to sort of take people and lead them down a path that sounds right, but is actually a perversion of what God has said. Just as in the garden, when the snake said to Adam and Eve, did God really say this? Right? He was getting them to ask themselves, is this what God really wants for us? And as we come to the book of Jude, and, and even if you would look at the second chapter of Second Peter, if you would compare the second chapter of Second Peter with the book of Jude, you'll find they're very similar. And the warnings about false teachings and false gospels are so pervasive in the New Testament that I think it should bring us as God's people back to the knowledge and understanding that we have an active enemy who is seeking to kill and destroy and pull the wool over people's eyes to show them something that sounds like truth, but is actually a lie that will lead to their destruction. And as we come to the book of Jude, this is all that he's talking about. And as he begins, we'll, we'll, we'll see how he starts off this. But I just want to start with verses 1 and 2, and I think, uh, I think we've got a slide with 1 and 2 on it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. See, this, this book, as we get into it and realize that it's about the gospel and defending the gospel, this is written to believers. And there is a strong encouragement not to fall into error from Jude to believers, and I think many of us are sort of lulled into a complacency, uh, even as Christians, if we would say that we've been walking with the Lord, or we would say that we are saved, and yet we, we are so easily distracted from what is the gospel. We are so easily knocked off course into something that seems like the pattern of life we should be engaging in, and yet it's, it's so different than what Christ has laid out for us. And so Jude, we want to make sure that we understand that this is not a book that is just written to people who are not saved. This is a book about the gospel written to Christians. And the first thing that we, we find here in the book of Jude is this idea that we have to be fighting for the gospel. We have to fight for the gospel. Look at verse 3 with me. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See, as Jude starts this book out, he says, look, I wanted to send you a letter of encouragement about the common salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to high-five you guys and say, good job, this is amazing. Isn't, isn't what God has done for us wonderful? And yet then Jude turns and says, you know, I, I wanted to write an encouraging letter. But I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, to contend for the faith. See, at this point in time, even in the early church, there had been people who had come into the church, and they were seeding ideas about Christ and about the gospel that were not true. They sounded right to people. They sounded like they could lead to freedom and life. And yet what Jude is saying is you have to be on your guard. And as Christians, we are called to the gospel. We're called to the gospel. Our whole life, our whole identity is wrapped up in the gospel. See, it can't be one of those things in which we say, well, part of my life is a Christian, right? I have this job, I have this family, and this part of me is a Christian. No, folks, 
If we are saved, that is our primary identity. Everything else, everything else is to support that identity. So it doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter what your family looks like. It doesn't matter where, how, how talented you are. Everything that you are, if you are a believer, the core of who you are is rooted in the identity that you have in Jesus Christ as a new creature, right? That's our, our core identity. And we are called to live out the gospel. And part of that, Jude says, is to fight for it. One of my favorite uh, authors and preachers who has been long passed away and, and in glory with our Savior is Charles Spurgeon. And I don't, know if, if, I don't know if you know Charles Spurgeon. I'm sure Pastor Jeremy has referred to him multiple times. But Spurgeon says this about the church. We ought to regard the Christian church not as a luxurious hostelry where Christian gentlemen may each one dwell at his ease in his own inn, but as a barracks in which soldiers are gathered together to be drilled and trained for war. And see, this is one of the things that we miss as well, and I see it all the time. I see it even in my own life. And, and there are these warnings in Scripture that say, like, you are not in peacetime, and we do not war against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities. And, and we are not in a place, ladies and gentlemen, especially in the culture that we live in, not only in this nation, but in the world. We are not in a place where Christianity should just be about us getting together and sort of feeling good about fulfilling our responsibilities as, as church people. We are in a war with an active enemy who wants nothing more than to destroy people, to claim their souls, and to wreak havoc in God's church. An active enemy. And so Jude says, I, I would write to you and say, you guys are doing great, this is awesome, but I, I feel it more necessary to write to you and appeal to you to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith. And why does he say that we should fight for the faith? The first thing we see is that we're all, we're all servants of Christ. Our identity, I just mentioned it. Our identity is as a servant of Christ. And if you look at verse 1, if you jump back to verse 1, Jude, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now here's, here's what we don't get upon first seeing this. Jude was a brother. Jude and James were both brothers of Jesus Christ. But Jude doesn't say, Jude, a brother of Jesus Christ and of James. Jude himself, the brother of Christ, says, Jude, the servant of Christ and brother of James. Even, even Jude did not just recognize Christ as his brother from a fleshly perspective, but what he said is what all of us as believers should say, is our primary identity is first as a servant of Christ. And so we fight for the gospel because primarily we are servants of Christ. It is our joy, it is our desire to proclaim him purely and make him known. We've been called, beloved, and kept. And in verse 3, Jude also tells us why we need to fight for the gospel. This is because the gospel is unchanging. It's unchanging. Look where he says, I write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And here's, here's, this comes up all the time. And I, I want to make this clear. There are no new developments in the gospel. None. Everything we have in scripture that has been given to us, the canon of scripture is closed. There's nothing more that God needs to reveal to us for us to understand how we might have salvation. Nothing. We have his word 
that is sure and steadfast. And yet so many of us in churches today feel like we need an extra revelation from God. We need something else that says more than what Scripture is saying. And I find far too often people are more willing to go read the newest book by somebody who's, who's saying something wonderfully new that they've never heard before than spend time in the Scripture that is from the hand and heart of God. And what Jude is saying is this is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. One of my favorite pastors, Paul Washer, he says, Each generation of Christians must realize that an eternal gospel has been handed down to them. As stewards, it is our charge to preserve that gospel without additions, subtractions, or any sort of modification. It is increasingly harder for us in this day and age to talk with people who would say they are Christians about our common salvation, right? Jude says, I want to talk to you about what our common salvation is, but I have to appeal to you to contend for the faith. Here's the reality. uh, uh, There's a a few groups of uh, people from our church that like to go out. Uh, Cedar Rapids does these big farmer's markets where there'll be just thousands of people out walking. I don't know if you've ever, anybody ever been down to Cedar Rapids at the farmer's market? No? All right. Uh, But they'll do these farmer's markets and they'll get out. People will be walking around. And so um, some of us from the church had an idea that we could go out there and just sort of engage with people one-on-one and have conversations with them that would ultimately lead us to sharing the gospel. And you would be surprised to find how many people, as soon as you walk up to them and start talking, you say, hey, we're just going out having conversations with people. We just want to talk to them about Jesus. And their immediate response is, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. But when you ask them, what is it that makes you a Christian? They're hard-pressed to tell you anything that, that is related to Scripture. Mostly it's like, well, I grew up, I grew up in church. I, 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 you know, my parents made me go to church all the time, and I, I, I believe in God. And we live in a world in which many people, even many churches all over this nation today, are meeting together, but they're not meeting together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're meeting together under a gospel of humanism and how we can be the best people that we can be, and God gets left out of the equation. That's why Jude says at this time, you have to contend for the faith. It's because we would think when we meet someone who says, oh, I'm a Christian, that immediately would mean that we have brotherhood or sisterhood with them. But this is not the case. Because many people are laboring under a false gospel. And it would be awesome. It would be wonderful if we could really spend our time just encouraging each other to keep following Jesus. But in this age, there is so much perversion of the gospel going on that all of us, All of us as believers, we have to be ready to fight. Now, when I say fight, obviously scripture says you have to be gentle in the way that you deal with other people. So your speech has to be seasoned with salt. But we don't back down from conversations. We are not shy. We don't shrink back. But we share the faith once for all delivered to the saints with other people. And here's here's one more thing where I I think it's, it's good for us to sit on this for just a second. One of the things that I think is a little bit tricky is when people say, well, I want to share my faith with somebody else. Now, what we really mean, or what we really mean when I say I want to share my faith, is I want to share the faith, right? Because nobody is really going to get saved from hearing just my personal experience, right? The gospel has to be declared to them. What Christ has done for us, though we were sinful, that Christ came to this earth, that he died, he was crucified on the cross, that he was buried, that he was raised 
to the right hand of the Father, and that he intercedes there for us, that we are justified, we are being sanctified because of the blood of Jesus Christ who has conquered sin and death. That's what we declared to people, not just that I have a better life because of Jesus, right? And that, a lot of times, becomes our gospel to people. Well, my life is better because of Jesus. But many of you know, if you've been a believer for any period of time, probably the biggest lie we could tell people is your life automatically gets easier when you find Christ. For most people, for most of us, it gets, in fact, harder. Paul presented this of first importance, what had been delivered to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, look, there is a message that has been delivered. And Paul says this, I present to you of first importance that Christ died, that he, according to the scriptures, that he was uh, buried according to the scriptures, he was raised to new life according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to all these people, ultimately to 500 people at one time. But he says this is of first importance. The gospel is about the saving work of Jesus Christ. Says it has been delivered to us. We, we don't need new books. We don't need a brand new smart teacher to tell us new things that we've never heard before when we have God's word in front of us. Amen? Is God's word sufficient to make us wise unto salvation? Yes. It testifies of it itself. And the next thing that, that Jude says is that the gospel has active enemies. The gospel has active enemies. Look at verses 4 through 7. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. See, we have to fight for the gospel not only because it's been delivered to us, not just because we're servants of Christ, not just because it's been delivered to us, but also because there are active enemies of the gospel. There are people whom Satan has seated in this world that their desire is to lead people from the path that leads to salvation. And this is something that, that has been going on since the beginning of time. But Jude says this, it's very interesting, in verse 4. They have crept in unnoticed. And many of us think we would immediately know when someone is speaking something that is not the gospel, because we would immediately hear how it's not the gospel. But this is not the case. Again, as I said, and you know this to be true, there are many churches all over this nation, all over the world, that are preaching something, calling it the gospel, that is actually a subtle lie that is leading people away from the grace of Jesus Christ and into sensuality and into their own lusts, the lust of their flesh, the lust of their eyes, the pride of life, the things that undo us, that the gospel that they're giving people is seeded with something that is not really the gospel. And I can give you examples, and I, I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but there's a, there's a gentleman by the name of William Paul Young who wrote this book called The Shack. And it's one of the most destructive pieces of literature that I've ever seen before, because although it claims itself to be fiction, it purports to tell people about how to understand God. But, brothers and sisters, this is what tells us how to understand God. We don't need someone telling us a new revelation of how we might understand God when we have God himself saying, this is who I am. When a book comes out and we are 
encourage to flock to it because it might explain something to us. Now listen, there are wonderful authors and wonderful books and wonderful lists of reading that we could give to you that would be extremely helpful. And there are many times where great people like C.S. Lewis have helped help explain things to me that, that make so much more sense. But when somebody is telling us something that has never appeared in Scripture before, and they're telling us that this is a new revelation that God has given to them, you must be very, very, very wary of that. They aren't always noticed. The reason we have to contend for the gospel is that many things that are spread even within evangelical churches are perversions of the true gospel that aren't able to be cited at face value. And many of us, guys, this is the truth, and I see this in youth ministry all the time. Many of us would never know it because unlike the, unlike the Bereans, many of us don't spend much time in our word to where if I were to, if we were to have a, someone stand up in front of us and preach and say, this is what God has said. Many of us wouldn't even know if that was or wasn't in Scripture because we haven't spent enough time in God's Word to know the difference. And that hurts. And they pervert grace. They pervert grace, and we'll get into this here in a second. The core of the false gospels that we'll see here in a minute in Jude are, are the most destructive of those that diminish the law of God and diminish the sinfulness of man. They pervert grace. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed too long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They pervert grace into sensuality. Now at this point in time in the church, what was happening is, and you'll look in the book of Revelation and you'll see that at one of the letters that's written to the church is this woman named Jezebel who was seeding these uh, sort of this sexually immoral uh, practices as part of the worship, as part of the gospel. And these teachers would sneak in, and, and this is Paul's, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, his two letters to the church at Corinth. We see this as well. Sexual immorality sneaks into the church, and people are being told it's not that big a deal because Christ has died for sin. So since Christ has died for sin, we have the freedom to do whatever because we can find forgiveness. But sin is such a big deal that Christ has died for sin. Do you understand? And so even when many of us begin to think, well, this is not that bad because we have forgiveness under the cross of Christ, what we misunderstand is that's what these false teachers were doing. They were using grace as an excuse to do whatever they wanted under the umbrella of saying, well, Jesus will forgive me of this. Do you understand? And it's subtle. Paul Washer says the greatest reason for making much of sin is that it exalts the gospel. You cannot see the beauty of the stars in the midday sky because the light of the sun eclipses them. However, after the sun sets and the sky becomes black as pitch, you can see the stars in the full force of their splendor. So it is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can only see its true beauty against the backdrop of our sin. The darker man appears, the brighter the gospel shines. These false teachers were coming in and making less of sin so that they could make more of humans and more of themselves. And many of us get uncomfortable when we hear about sin. We don't want to hear about sin. That's why many people come into churches, and as soon as the pastor will be up front talking about sin and repentance and, and how heinous sin is, they will say, well, I don't want to go to church and feel bad about myself. But if you don't read the Bible and immediately feel bad about yourself at some point, I don't know that you're really reading the Bible. Every time I open God's Word, I see where I am deficient. And I see in God's grace and his sovereignty that Christ has made up for my deficiency through his sacrifice. Amen? So we, we can only 
understand the beauty of the cross of Christ if we make much of the sinfulness of man. Not lessen it, but make much of it. They, they deny Christ's lordship as well. It says they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not them coming into a church and denying Christ to people. What this means is these were false teachers. These were false gospels and false doctrines that were encouraging people to live in a way that was opposite what Christ had said. This is the way in which to walk, right? That you can't always recognize the false gospel because people will say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But in their lifestyle, they will deny him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Not if you love me, you will have sweetheart feelings about me. Not if you love me, everything in life will be great. Not if, if you love me, you will tell people that you love me. But Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. They functionally deny Christ's lordship. And it also says that they will be severely judged. Look at verse 5. And this is where it gets weird. And, and I want to illuminate to you, Jude spends an awful lot of time, and I'm not going to spend the bulk of my time in what he does, but Jude spends an awful lot of time, like, slamming false teachers. I mean, it's, it's an angry book. He's not just saying, like, oh, these guys are sort of off. He's really angry about how this has seeded and, and led people away from Jesus Christ, and that there could be people inside the church of Christ who could not uh, who were not really following the gospel because of these people. Jude spends a lot of time. I'm not going to spend as much time as he does, but I do think it's important for us to illuminate these things. That in verses uh, 5, 6, and 7, he shows the importance of understanding the judgment that comes upon people who seed and live out these false gospels. Verses 5 through 7, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now I want you to, I want you to hone in on that verse there, because this, this illuminates something to us that I think is really, really important. Many people see the God of the Old Testament, and they say, well, God of the Old Testament, if that's old school. All that horror, all that, you know, you should, Joshua, go into the land and, and slay the Canaanites— all these things that God did in the Old Testament, that's a wicked, evil, capricious God, and this is not the God we see in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But when Jude interacts with this gospel, what he says is that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, who was there saving the people out of the land of Egypt? Audience interaction. Who's the, who was there? Jesus. He was there. Jesus is not the third-string quarterback that gets sent in when everything goes wrong. Jesus is God there, leading the people out of Egypt. And yet, also it says, he saved the people out of the land of Egypt, but he afterward destroyed those who would not believe. What these false teachers were doing was leading people to believe that Jesus is all about the sort of the flower petal tossing sort of hippie guy who's like, I'm totally okay with everything you guys are doing. Jude says this is the same Christ who destroyed people in the wilderness who did not believe. Judgment is part of the gospel. And I know it's not palatable to many of us to think of a God who sends people to hell. But this is only what people rightly deserve. I think it's, it's more crazy to think that, there, that God would save any of us from hell by sending his son to die in our place. But judgment is part 
of the gospel. And the point of all these examples, he, he uses another example in Egypt and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then he, so he uses the angels. And if you look back at Genesis chapter 6, we're not going to get into this because this could get real crazy. We could spend like hours here, okay? But in Genesis chapter 6, it says that there were these angels that they decided they wanted, they saw the, the sons of men and they thought they were pretty, so they wanted to have children with them. So they leave heaven, they're cast out of heaven, come down to the earth, and, and somehow procreate with human women. And if you ever read the book of Enoch, I, it's a very crazy book, and this is what part of Jude is drawing from, is this extra-biblical literature called the book of Enoch, which the, the Jews sort of referenced uh, in different times and places. But what, what he's getting at is that even the angels are like these false teachers. As the angels left their proper dwelling place, as they sought to go outside of God's created order, they incurred judgment, right? Even angels are not exempt from judgment. You understand? He's saying, look, you, you are people. Even angels are not exempt from judgment. They didn't stay within their own position of authority. They left their dwelling, and he's kept them in eternal chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then he uses Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And all three of these examples, all three of these examples, Jude is making to a group of people who left God's authority and way and instead went to their own desires to the point where they began interacting with unnatural desires. And, and we'll get into this again in just a minute, but you, here's one thing that is important for us to understand as we look in Scripture, and especially the New Testament. Most of these false gospels, most of what centers on errant teaching and errant lifestyles, especially in the New Testament, a lot of it has to do with sexuality. And you'll see in modern times, the, the greatest things that are tearing even the evangelical church apart, apart that people can't even agree on now in evangelicalism is the idea of things like sexuality, gender confusion, transgender, you know, like uh, fluid, gender fluidity, what they're calling now, homosexuality, homosexual marriage, and then even into things like procreation with things like abortion. All these things are issues that are coming up because Satan loves playing around with sensuality and sexuality and twisting the gospel to where it says, you know what, grace covers everything and it doesn't matter what somebody does because everybody's under grace. But this is not the true gospel. The gospel never diminishes grace to the point where you can just take it for granted and live how you want. And this is what Jude is, is saying. He's saying that these false teachers have rejected God's authority. And so then, then we get led into by Jude, now that we know that there are these false teachers and we have enemies within the church, how do we recognize these false gospels? And just, just briefly, I want to say this about them. They are all human-centered. How is, uh, we as believers, how might we recognize when we are hearing something that is not really the gospel? It will be human-centered and not God-centered. See, one of the biggest mistakes we make is thinking that human beings are the most important part of God's story. That when we read the Bible, we are constantly looking for ways in which we can even be like Bible characters. How can I be like David? Don't be like David! 
That's the, that's the answer. When you watch David, I heard it when I was growing up, and I'd hear a story about David and Goliath, and everybody would be like, see, you got to be like David, or you got to be like Daniel. And I'm like, I can't do that. And I wouldn't want to be like David. David fell into all sorts of sin, right? Terrible sin. And the people that God used the most through Scripture were these people that had fallen into horrible sin, which, yes, shows that God uses sinful human beings to accomplish his purposes. But the entirety of Scripture is not about you, and it's not about me. It's about Christ. Christ. We are all living in God's story, not ours, right? Our story plays a part, but we are really only as important as we glorify God. And I know to some of us, that hurts us immediately. I know there's got to be at least some people in here that are like, that's not, that sounds false. That doesn't even sound right. I like me. You know what? That's our problem. We want to be the center of the universe. We want to be the center of Scripture. But God is the center. And human-centered in these three ways. First, they put human ideas over God's revelation. Look at verse 8. In like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Scripture is our authority, not human ideas. And I referenced this earlier. That's why when somebody comes out with a book and said, you know what, I've been thinking about how certain things in Scripture, they say this, but I don't think that's really right. And the more I think about it, the more I've come up with something that I think is more true to reality. That is not something that as Christians we need to be engaging in. They put human ideas over God's revelation. Right? It's it's like, and quite frankly, and this may make some of you mad, but when somebody says, look, the Pope can declare things that are on level with Scripture, Scripture never allows for that. He has he does not have that authority by the word of God. So when says is right too. So well, the Pope just came out and said this. That doesn't matter. According to scripture, it does not matter. Thus saith the Lord, not thus saith a man. And it doesn't come from a super spiritual teacher or author or housewife or politician who says that God told them new things that give us insight that scripture has failed to give us. That doesn't mean that God does not speak to us. In his grace and in his mercy, God does speak to us through the Holy Spirit. But what it does mean is we have to be very careful. Brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful when somebody comes out with a new book or a new show or a new idea that says something that Scripture never says. That says something that the Gospel never says. All Scripture is inspired and profitable. Jesus said, not not an iota will pass, not a jot or a tittle will pass. Peter said we have this prophecy more sure. They not only put human ideas over God's revelation, they put human impulses, human impulses over God's law. Human impulses over God's law. Gnosticism was a teaching that, among other things, said that since we would receive new bodies, what is done in the flesh is not that important. Some of these teachers that were coming in were of this Greek idea that all the flesh, the flesh was just corrupt anyway, and we were going to lose the flesh at some point. We would be made into spiritual beings, and at our core, we were spiritual beings. So they were for Jesus in a certain way. But what they would say about sin is it's not really that big a deal because, you know, our bodies are fully corrupt anyway, and we can't wait to get out of our bodies. So what we do in the flesh doesn't really matter. The sin that we commit, it doesn't really matter because God just forgives it and washes it away anyway, and it's not that important. But diminishing sin by crying grace and saying silly things like, well, everybody is a sinner. 
using that as an excuse to sin is not the gospel. Like the, the argument that we've been having over these things like, uh, like the Supreme Court decision with homosexual marriage. The argument that I hear most from people is like, well, everybody's a sinner, so who are you to say somebody else's sin is any better than, than you know, any worse than yours? Well, first of all, Scripture does define that there are some sins that are more egregious in nature and have greater effects than others, right? Like killing someone is, is not necessarily the same thing as taking a peppermint when you didn't, when it wasn't yours. Does everybody agree with that, right? So we diminish sin in order to make ourselves feel better about what we're doing. But that is not the gospel. It diminishes grace. And Peter says that they, these teachers promise freedom, but they're actually themselves slaves to corruption. And the third thing is that they, they put human authority, they put human ideas over God's revelation, they put human impulses over God's law, and false gospels also put human authority over God's authority. Human authority over God's authority. In like manner, these people, relying on the dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Why does it put this story in here about Moses' body? Now, if you go back and read where God buried Moses and then concealed his body. See, they were never able to find the body of Moses. Because God knew that if they, were, if they were able to find the body of Moses, that they would dig him up and somehow enshrine him and worship Moses instead of worshiping God. So God concealed his body. And in extra biblical literature, there's this story about how Satan and the archangel Michael are fighting over, disputing over the body of Moses. That's a weird story. But the point that Jude is making is this. That Moses' body was concealed by the Lord so that the Israelites would not worship Moses in his death. See, human beings, even the most faithful ones, are not worthy of worship. Human beings are not worthy of worship. That authority, that glory, belongs to God. And even the archangel, the God's primary angel, did not himself say, On my authority, Satan, I rebuke you. But he said, On God's authority, I rebuke you. See, these false teachers were coming in and not only telling people that it was okay to sin, they were also telling people that you have power over Satan. You have power over demons. And folks, that's real dangerous ground to get into. We have no authority over those angels and principalities. We have no authority over those rulers and demons. God has the authority. And if you ever are told by somebody that you alone can just rebuke Satan, you better be real careful. Because you're inviting something that even the archangel Michael said, I won't do. I won't do it. We don't have that power. That power belongs to God. So we defer that authority to God. A false gospel is always born from the idea that humans are the center of the universe. The center of the universe. But why does Jude spend so much time illuminating who the false teachers are and why their work is so destructive? Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. <clears throat> and we're almost done. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Do you get how many times he's saying ungodly? And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Why does Jude spend so much time illuminating to Christians the work of false teachers and the effects of the false gospels? Because he says judgment is real and it is coming. See, 
I spend a lot of time with, with the teenagers that we have at our church. I spend a lot of time encouraging them. That if you're, just coming, if you're just coming into a church, if you believe that you're a Christian because of some sort of thing that you've done, if you believe that you belong to God because some sort of prayer that you prayed when you were five years old, and you have been living your life in a false gospel, you have been living for your own sensuality, you have been living on your own impulses, you've followed your own sins, and you continue returning to those sins, and yet you still think that you belong to God, you need to take heed from what Paul says to the Corinthians and examine yourselves and test yourselves to see if you're truly in the faith. Because Judas, what he's saying to Christians is this, you better make sure that what you have at your core is the real gospel. Don't be swayed by the false gospels. You have to fight for it to make sure that it will be true in the end that you are one of those that belong to God. Folks, it's a sober warning. We cannot just labor on the idea that, well, I think I'm a Christian because of this. If we are not living lives that are built on the gospel, it is time for us to get real with God and to examine the core of our lives, our behavior, our mindset, what our heart gravitates towards, to see if we are truly in Christ. This was a message to believers. So we build our lives on the gospel. Build our lives on the gospel. And here's where we end. Here's where Jude ends with us. It's the most important part of this letter that he writes. Build your life on the gospel. It says, remember the reality of this world. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the predictions. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. See, he says, the first thing is you have to understand the reality of this world. If we're going to build our lives on the gospel, we have to understand that these things are going to happen. We can't live in this candy land world where we feel like, you know what, I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to bury my head, do my thing, and I'm not going to pay attention to what's going on around me. We have to understand that this is stuff that the apostles said would come. There will be false teachings. There will be persecution. There will be people who target Christians and gun them down simply for being Christians because Satan wants to destroy. The apostles predicted this. And this is talking about people within the church. He talks about causing divisions. And Paul says to the Corinthians, there must be divisions so that it can be true which ones of you are really in Christ and which ones of you are not truly in Christ. And so remembering the reality of this world means we, we shouldn't be afraid to draw the line when Christians are perverting the gospel. If, if you know of someone who, pro, who proclaims Christ and yet they're preaching or speaking or living something that is not based on the true gospel of Jesus Christ that we find in his word, draw the line. Draw the line. Don't just have fellowship and be like, well, I don't want to get into their business. I, I really don't think that's my place to interject. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. The second thing is we build our life in the spirit. Look at verse 20. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. The, the Bible clearly says that if anyone does not have the spirit of God, he is not his. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What happens to us is not just an intellectual acceptance of some fact. You may be sitting in here, you may know somebody who said, well, I heard the gospel and I responded to the gospel because I generally believe that Christ was real and I generally believe that he died for sins. But if you have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, made new, and now have a desire for God, you may not be his. And this is what we preach and why we preach so fervently that if you have not truly been changed, it doesn't matter what you say you believe. It doesn't matter what you say you know. If you've not been made new, you don't belong to him. And you might say, well, what am I supposed to do? If you don't know that you know that you know, then today you make it your mission to go home and get on your knees for as long as it takes and cry out to God and ask him to reveal himself to you. To search through the scriptures, to call on God, Lord, would you save me? Would you reveal to me the truth of your gospel? Many people struggle with doubt and discouragement because they are not feasting daily on truth. The more you base your life on an emotional assessment of your situation, the farther away you are from truth. See, many of us, we don't build our lives on the gospel. We build our lives on how we feel in the moment. And on days when we're feeling pretty bad, we act pretty bad. On days when we're feeling pretty good, we act pretty good. And that's why it's so up and down. And that's why there's so, dis- so much discouragement and disillusionment. It's because we base our lives on how we feel about the things that God does and not on what God has done in Christ and what he's done in us and giving us new life. We should keep ourselves in God's eternal love. Look at verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And this is where I think this is beautiful. Uh, If if you know Christ, and there's a great book by J.D. Greer called Gospel, and in it he says this thing that I just think is amazing. He says, in Christ, there's nothing I could do to make God love me more. And in Christ, there's nothing I could do to make God love me less. See, the good news of the Gospel is that in Christ, there's, there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. And there's nothing we can do to lose God's favor. Do you understand? Amen? Do you understand? In Christ. But brother or sister, if you're not in Christ, you don't get that same assurance. If you're not in Christ, how deep the Father's love for us, how great beyond all measure. It says that he sings over us in Scripture in Zechariah. And the last thing we need to be able to do as we're building our life on the gospel is proclaim the gospel to others. And I want to show you three types of people that Jude says that we should be proclaiming the gospel to. And again, remember, this is written to believers. So look at verse uh, verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. That's the first group of people, the sincere doubters. Many people simply need to be reminded daily of the gospel. Many people who are the sincere doubters, they would gladly receive truth and guidance from loving believers. I'm not talking about people who are always looking for arguments. I'm talking about people who are gently saying, I don't understand, I need help. We need to be gentle with people who are earnestly seeking answers. When we begin to think that we are more important because of our knowledge or experience, we are missing the truth of the gospel. We are one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. The second thing is verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Snatching. When he says snatching them out of the fire, this is meant to be like a quick jerk. If you saw your child running into traffic, if you have children, you saw your child or a child running into traffic and you knew they were going to be hit by a car, what would you do to get them out of the way of that car? Anything. 
You'd tackle them to get them out of the way of that car because you knew destruction was coming for them. When Jude says save others by snatching them from the fire, what he says is sometimes for some people who are dangerously deceived, the only way that you can get through to them is with a stern rebuke. And you might say, well, that doesn't seem very gentle. I'm not, I'm not considering how gentle I am with my children if they're about to get hit by a car. I'm not considering how gentle I am with people who claim to be believers if I see them walking in error that leads to destruction. I'm probably not gentle. I'm probably going to lay it on them because they need it. We all need to be spanked spiritually at certain points in our life. Amen? We all need to be snatched. And the last group of people, the last group of people, To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude says you have to proclaim the gospel to generally three different types of people. You you gentle with some, some you got to give a stern rebuke. And then there is one, the eagerly sinful. And that group, it's only for mature believers. And here's, here's what I say to young people all the time. If you think you are going to lead other people to the gospel by hanging out with them and doing the same things that they do, you are sorely mistaken. Okay? That's not going to happen. We can get tainted by sin when we live in it with other people, even if we think we're the ones that are going to lead them out of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So some of us think that we can go into certain situations and we'll be okay. And then we find ourselves struggling with the same sins that those friends of ours are struggling with. We wonder why we can't get away from those. If you are immature in your discipleship, you have no business trying to counsel someone who is caught in a grievous sin pattern by joining them in their sinfulness. I had a great problem with alcohol at one point in time in my life when I was young. The reason being because I had a group of friends who had a great problem with alcohol. And I thought I could go out with them and hang out with them and spend time with them and minister to them and hopefully get them closer to Christ. And in the end, what I found is I was closer to their way of life than they were closer to Christ. This is why Jude says you have to show mercy with fear. That you're not tainted with sin. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, some, said something that's really, really smart. And I want to share this with you as, as I close. He says, shall I dick myself to study? Shall I surrender myself to business? Shall I travel? Shall I spend my time in pleasure? Shall I become the principal fox hunter in the country? This is a long time ago. Fox hunter in the country. Shall I lay out my time in promoting political and social reforms? Think them all over. But if you are a Christian my, man, my friend, nothing will equal in enjoyment, in usefulness, in honor, and in lasting recompense the giving yourself up to the winning of souls. If we are believers, our primary mission is the Great Commission. Our primary mission is to be building our lives on the gospel to such a point that we are sharing it with everybody we come in contact with unashamedly. We are fighting for the gospel. We are recognizing when we see false gospels and encounter false gospels. And we are constantly building our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what the gospel, you can write this down. I didn't make this up, but I think this is just a brilliant way to put it. G-O-S-P-E-L. It's an acronym. God created us to be with him. Our sin separates us from God. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone may have eternal life. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. G-O-S-P-E-L. Right? Gospel. We build our lives on it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just, uh, we ask for a great deal of mercy, Lord. We ask for a great deal of understanding. Lord, it's, it's 
hard for us. It's hard for us sometimes to live in a world that is so saturated with sin. Because we ourselves find that um, it's just easy for us to fall into all sorts of sins, Lord. It's easy for us to believe things that are seemingly so true. It's easy for us to believe that, that grace is, has absolutely no strings attached and then live in such a way where we sort of pervert that grace. Lord, it's easy for us to get knocked off track. Lord, I pray that this morning that, that everyone who is here would be searching your word on a daily basis. Lord, would be interacting with the, the truth of the gospel that says there's nothing that we could do to make our way to you. That you have done everything necessary to make us right with you by coming, wrapping yourself in flesh, by living as a servant, by giving your life to die for our sin. By taking on our sin upon your shoulders, bearing the wrath Father. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here today who is not entered into the beauty of a relationship with you, that Father, today would be the day that your Holy Spirit opens their heart to be able to receive it, Lord. Give them humility to understand and receive it. Father, we ask that, um, that if there's anyone in here today that's struggling with some sort of besetting sin, maybe they're a believer, they've been walking with you, but they're struggling in a besetting sin that has been leading them astray and possibly even others in their family astray, Lord, we pray that today would be the day which they're made right with you, that they're brought back into the fold. Father, we ask that for those in here who are struggling to understand how they might minister and witness to other people, Lord, we pray that you would give us the boldness to stand up and declare the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Lord, we love you. We love your word. Lord, I thank you for these faithful people. I pray that you would just see deep in their hearts the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you would just Give us an amazing vision for ministering to other people, Lord, and uh, help us to always keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who is able to keep us until the last day. So we love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray.